Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is a renowned speculator and international investor. He is the founder of Financial Underground and an editor-in-chief of its premium investment research publication, Contra Speculator. Today's guest travels the world searching for lucrative investment opportunities in overlooked markets, and he is known for spotting geopolitical and economic trends early. Please welcome to the show, Nick Giambruno. Nick, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great, Mikkel. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'm excited to have you here. Why don't you take a minute and kind of walk us through your backstory? How did you get interested in investing and specifically investing in these really underlooked markets, you could say? Yeah, sure. Well, I grew up in Minnesota in the U.S., and that's it's a nice place, nice place to have a family, but it is uh, rather insular, honestly. And even as a young kid, I knew I wanted to go out and see the world. So I had all of this pent up desire to go and travel. And when I was older, I had the opportunity to go when I was in college. I had the opportunity. I mean, the only good thing that came out of college, frankly, was uh, that I got to go abroad, uh, junior year abroad. That was the best thing. Otherwise, kind of a waste of time and money. But that wasn't. I got a chance to go abroad. And since I had so much pent up desire, I went all throughout Europe. I went through Eastern Europe. I went through the Balkans. I went through countries that otherwise people don't usually go to, uh, Bosnia, Kosovo. Most people don't go to these places, but I I wanted to see them because I just had all this pent up desire to travel. And I also went through the Middle East and I had some adventures in the Middle East. That's how I got the travel bug and I've been doing it ever since. Okay. Now in university, did you study what you work in now or did you study something completely different? Well, I did study what I work in now. I did international finance as my degree, and I do work in finance. I do work in investing and so forth. But honestly, I don't use any of that stuff. I don't use anything that I learned, maybe some proper accounting methods like how to classify assets, liabilities, and this kind of stuff. But that I didn't need to go to four years of school for that. I could have done that on YouTube now in retrospect and saved tens of thousands of dollars. So I eventually had to deprogram myself from the junk, the economic which is all Keynesian economics. Uh, maybe your viewers are, are aware of the difference between Keynesian economics and, and Austrian economics. It's free market economics versus state-controlled economics. So that's what they teach you in school. So I had to deprogram myself and relearn the field that I had supposedly been trained in. But like I said before, it had an international component to it. So I had to choose a region of the world. I had to go there. I had to learn the language. I had to study there. I had to find out the local financial uh, issues surrounding that region. And I chose the Middle East. I was always interested in the Middle East. It seemed as a kid growing up, it's always in the news and it seemed like a confusing place. So I wanted to really learn about what was really going on there. And so I decided to fuse finance with the Middle East. And that's uh, what I did. Well, it's an interesting point about the YouTube because I didn't go to university for finance. I went on Khan Academy when I decided I wanted to learn these things and watch something like three or 400 videos on finance and economics and these types of things. And Mm -hmm. I didn't pay one penny and it took me like six months of study. And that was like my base for these types of things. Now, talking about the Middle East, you actually lived over there, if I'm not mistaken, right? You used to live in Lebanon. 
Yes, that's correct. So I originally went to Lebanon by coincidence in the summer of 2006, which is when a war broke out with Israel and Lebanon. And that was a traumatic time. It was the first time I'd uh, been in an active war zone. And let's take a step back, though. Why did I choose Lebanon? Lebanon, as a somebody going an American studying abroad in the Middle East, there's not many places that you can go where the credits transfer back to universities in the U.S. There's maybe a handful. And out of all of the choices, Lebanon seemed the most appealing. Lebanon is a Mediterranean country. Beirut has an awesome nightlife. So as a kid in his early 20s, it seemed like a, a better choice than going to the other alternatives. So I chose to go to Lebanon. And it is a fun place. Lebanon is a fascinating place. And before I... I didn't realize what there's something about it, just something about it that seemed like there's more freedom. Look, it's it's it, it has its problems, it has a ton of problems. It has many, many problems. But I came from a place where, like in the Midwest, in the US, where if you roll through a stop sign, you you know, you could get pulled over by the cops. You go five miles over the speed limit, they're gonna, you know, pull you over, and it's a not a fun situation. So when I went to Lebanon, there was nothing like that. And I didn't realize like what it was, but I would later realize as I became more of an anarcho-capitalist and I understood that the state doesn't have a monopoly on the use of force in Lebanon. So therefore the state is very weak in Lebanon. Therefore they're not having the ability to, you know, bother people if they roll through a stop sign or they, you know, go five miles over the speed limit. So that was, I didn't realize it at the time, but I would come to realize that's why it was. Anyways, I went to Lebanon in, uh, it was summer of 2006 and a war broke out between Israel and Lebanon. And I was stuck there at the time. I was at the American University of Beirut, which is a beautiful university. It's right on the Mediterranean Sea. It's uh, actually older than Lebanon itself. It was formed uh, during the Ottoman Empire when uh, Lebanon was part of the Ottoman Empire. And beautiful university overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. So a wonderful, wonderful place. Of course, uh, the war broke out and I got to see it firsthand and see the discrepancy between how it was reported on the media versus what I was seeing with my own eyes. And it was really an eye-opening situation. So that being said, I really liked Lebanon. I fell in love with it. And I decided to go back there uh, after a few years after I graduated. And this is 2010. I was there in 20, 2006. And then I went back in 2010 and started working for an investment bank based out of Dubai, but with an office in Lebanon, in Beirut. And I stayed there for a few years. So that's uh, kind of my, just a, a quick uh, touch up of my experiences in Lebanon. Well, I was in Lebanon two months ago, three months ago, something like that. And it's interesting that you had seen it said about the traffic as well. It's one of the only places I've been in the world where there's really no dotted line or anything like that. It's just a giant road and people just kind of weave in between and you know they figure it all out and you use the horn when you're going around the corners so it is a lack of laws or rules surrounding this but there's also very unspoken laws and rules that people abide by and somehow it just works and i can think of some other countries in the region that are very similar to this now i've had a chance to live in the middle east but in a very different area i lived in abu dhabi in dubai for nine years and that is like very, very strict laws on anything and everything, but have had a chance to travel through the majority of the countries through the GCC and the Middle East and things like that. And to your point of how most people on who watch Western media have really no idea of what's going on over there. That was certainly my experience there. You know, I would tell people I live in the Middle East and they seem to think I live in Baghdad or something like that. And it's like, no, I mean, it's actually a huge area with many different cultures, many different people, many different ways of life and perspective and things like that. But I am curious more about your opinion about Lebanon, because you have family ties now to Lebanon through your wife, right? Yes, yes. My wife is Lebanese-American, and she's of Lebanese descent. And yeah, that's uh, it's interesting. So we haven't gone back there recently, but... Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating place. I, I also met Doug Casey in Lebanon. So this will take a step back. It was a, kind of a strange thing to do. So when I came back from Lebanon in 2006 after the war, you know, I really liked it. And I, I got a job in Minneapolis and I worked in Minneapolis for a few years. And, you know, I always wanted to go back to uh, the Middle East and, and to Lebanon. So I kind of just up and went and bought a one-way ticket there in 2010. And uh, it was one of the best things I, it was the best decision I ever did, but everybody thought I was crazy at the time. Taking a one-way ticket to Lebanon after you've been through the war, why would you ever want to go back there? But I, I went back and I, I got a job working in finance there. I met 
my future wife. I met Doug Casey, who has become a good partner, a a colleague that I've been working with to this day. So it was really a fork in the road in my life. And I'm very glad I made that decision. And my life would be totally different if I wouldn't have have done that back in 2010. So yeah, I think that was a a very fateful decision. Yeah, I bet. Now, with your investment thesis these days, do you still do a lot of investing or looking at projects in the Middle East in general? Or has things changed because of the geopolitical things that have obviously changed since 2006 when you were first there and today as we're recording this? Yeah, you know, honestly, I haven't seen many good investments or speculations there for several reasons. Uh, And it's not just the Middle East. I mean, it's around the world. All the most investments have been insanely overvalued. And why would you want to take out, you know, in a risk over in an overvalued market in a risky place like the Middle East? It just, you know, it didn't make any sense. I, I mean, I keep my eyes open. I have a global perspective. I always am looking for blood in the streets type situations because that's, you know, you can find compelling investments in those kinds of situations. But honestly, I haven't really seen anything in the Middle East in recent years that would really pique my interest to make it worthwhile, frankly. So no, I haven't seen anything good, but I'm keeping my open. So do you think, though, with inflation at absolutely ridiculous rates right now and energy prices going up, I would imagine that you have quite a firm background in oil or a good understanding of oil. Do you think that a lot of these types of things are really going to come back in favor and that your experience in the Middle East is maybe going to alert you to things or, or maybe have a deeper understanding of what's happening over there? Yes, certainly. It, what it has really helped with now, just because there's not any specific investments or speculations that I'm seeing in the Middle East that are attractive, what the Middle East is very important for is understanding the big picture, the macro situation, the big picture situation geopolitically, the big picture economically, very, very important. So yes, I think that has informed my opinions on where certain things are going geopolitically with the oil markets and with what's going on in the region, because that affects all sorts of stuff, not just primarily energy markets, but other other aspects as well, because the Saudis are very much tied to the Americans through the petrodollar system. And that is kind of where the fusion is between geopolitics, oil and finance is that. So really, and that's that if you don't understand the petrodollar, you don't understand the relations between the, the Saudis and the Americans, then you don't really understand the fundamental bedrock of the U.S. financial system. So it's, it's very fundamental, but most people don't know the fundamentals in that regard. Well, it's interesting because with OPEC cutting production right now and Saudi Arabia kind of going on the shit list a little bit for the U.S. and now everything else that's happening, it just seems like such an interesting moment in history to watch what's going on or or to try to unravel and understand what's happening. So I think that today's conversation is so important because these are the kind of things that I want to explore with you because this is really such a pivotal moment in our history. It is. And with regard to the Saudis, what you have to understand, and one thing Trump said a bunch of kooky things, but one thing that he said was absolutely correct. He said that without the umbrella of protection, the Saudi royal family would be gone in two weeks, maybe for, I think, two, 48 hours or something like that. But whatever he said, the sentiment of it is true. The Saudis wouldn't exist without the Americans' protection, uh, military protection, political protection. Who talks about human rights in Saudi Arabia? Maybe some, they, they mouth it, but nobody really cares. Where are the sanctions on Saudi Saudi Arabia for human rights. Where are the sanctions on Saudi Arabia for the Yemen war? Nobody even talks about the war in Yemen. Most people don't even know about it. This is a huge war. Actually, it's a very interesting story. The Yemenis are the poorest Arabs, poorest people in the entire Middle East. They're penniless almost. They're very, very poor people. And then you have the Saudis who have more money. They have more money than anybody. They're the richest people in the Middle East. Who do you suppose would win that war? The richest people or the poorest people? Actually, the poorest people are putting up a pretty good fight. They're fighting against the Saudis who have an unlimited budget and un- almost unlimited access to the highest tech weapons. And here are these guys in flip-flops and AK-47s and they're fighting these people off. It's actually quite a remarkable story, but nobody talks about it or very, very few people talk about it. Anyways, the uh, Saudis are on a very tight leash. Don't, you know, they might do some things that look independent. Oh, they cut oil prices with this OPEC plus thing. And that annoyed, that irritated the U.S., but they're not going to have a fundamental shift between the U.S. because they know who is their protection. So who is protecting them, who is supporting them. So until what the Saudis are doing, and it is a little bit sneaky. Is they're trying to align with excuse me, Russia and China more, but not to the point where it breaks the relations. Just they're kind of hedging their bets. But 
bottom line is, is the Russians and the Chinese can't replace the U.S. in terms of protection. How are, what are the Russians going to send troops to protect the House of Saud or the Chinese? I, I don't think so. So the Americans are really the only game in town. I don't think the Saudis will push it too far, and I don't think the Americans will push it too far either. I mean, this is a two-way street. It's not just the Saudis that need the Americans. The Americans need the Saudis. How do you think... Where is all the support for the dollar coming from? The, the Saudis don't sell much oil to the U.S. They sell most of their oil to Asia and China in particular. So the Chinese and those Asians, they have to buy dollars to buy oil from the Saudis. That creates a huge demand for dollars. The Chinese don't want to pay for Saudi oil in dollars. They would rather pay for oil in Chinese yuan or something else. They don't want to use the dollar. It, it gives That's a lot, too. I mean, the oil market is the biggest commodity market in the world. It, it sets the bar for all the other commodities. So since that's traded in dollars, it kind of sets the benchmark for other things. Nonetheless, that is being chipped away. The Russians and the Chinese are exchanging. Russia is a huge oil producer and China is a huge oil consumer. They're doing deals outside of the dollar. So you got to look at all of this stuff. But the relationship between the Saudis and the Americans is fundamental to understanding the, the world financial situation, honestly. Well, it's very interesting when you start researching and reading about Saudi Arabia and understanding their military and what's happening in Yemen. Because from the reports that I've read, the Saudi military and, and their air force and everything like that literally could not function without the U.S. If the U.S. pulls out and they've started to pull out some of the missile deployment centers there, then they don't have the technical skills or the parts or anything like this to actually maintain their own military. They are completely dependent on the U.S. So some people kind of think that it's only about the oil side, but there's actually so much that the U.S. gives to support Saudi Arabia as well. So there really is a back and forth. Now, it's an interesting point that you have made about the petrodollar because you're 100% right that Obviously, everything has to be transacted in U.S. dollars. We all know that. But the point that it is mostly sold in Asia, I think, is that uh, point that a lot of people don't understand. So what do you think the fate of the dollar is going to be? What do you think the direction of the dollar is going to be if they start transacting in other types of currencies or possibly a gold-backed currency or other types of currencies that are backed by commodities. Yeah, it's not going to be good. But I think the dollar is doomed, even if the Asians continue to buy oil from the Saudis in China. That is such a scam, frankly. I mean, they're basically allowing, they're exporting their the effects of their money printing on foreigners. Horrible thing. I mean, it's exporting their seniorage. I mean, very nice scam. It gives them much more leeway to print money. I'm sure the, the Venezuelans, what if the Venezuelans, would, would they like to sell their oil to the Saudi, to the Chinese and Bolivars? Well, that'll give a big boost to the Bolivar. I'm sure they would love that. So that's a benefit that no other country has. But yeah, the dollar, that is going to chip away at the dollars. So all of those dollars that would otherwise go to sucking up the demand from oil from Asia, those dollars are going to find another home. And that's going to cause prices to rise in other places. It's going to, you know, so that is not a good trend. At the same time, you've got all these other headwinds. The Russians are really moving forward at, with these ridiculous uh, sanctions that came into place earlier this year saying, well, you know, if you want to pay us in gold, you want to pay us in foreign currency, you even pay us in Bitcoin. Well, you can pay us in Bitcoin for oil. We're okay with that. The Russian government officially said that. So these things are moving quickly. And yeah, I don't think it's good for the dollar. I don't think it's good for any fiat currencies. I mean, look, the dollar is the best of all the fiat currencies. So it just, it just is. I mean, there's less risk. There may be, you know, like you've got the Swiss franc and some other ones too, but really it's, it's the dollar and then every other country. And the dollar is not that good. I mean, the fake inflation numbers, which the government puts out like eight or 9%, that totally understates the situation. But that's the best currency is is inflating at eight or 9% in the official rate. It's probably much worse. That's the best one. So this whole class of currencies, these are, this is confetti. This is like central bank confetti. This is garbage. Why do people use this as money? And that I think that is the biggest asymmetry in the market is that most human beings don't know what good money is. They don't know what good money is. And, and it's not that hard. People think, oh, I can't know about finance. I can't know about money. They see all these confusing charts with tickers, stock tickers flying across the screen and somebody, you know, Jim Cramer making weird noises. Like, I can't understand this stuff, but it's not that hard. All money is, is something that is used to store and exchange value. That's it. 
doesn't need to come from the government any more than like shoes need to come from the government or, you know, so this is ridiculous. So the average person doesn't understand this. It's money is nothing special. It's a tool. It's a tool like a hammer, like a shoe, and it has a specific purpose. So that is a very big distortion that most people, they have no idea. And I think we're going to feel the consequence. They're going to feel the consequences of, of that lack of knowledge very soon because it's being abused. The monetary systems are being abused everywhere. Monetary, the central banks are basically nothing more than a institutions to suck wealth out of the population and redistribute it to connected insiders. It's always been like that, but now it's just becoming more and more blatant and and just rapacious. So that is unfortunately the situation for all, I'm sorry for the long-winded answer, but all fiat currencies are junk. The US is just the best one temporarily. Well, you had also mentioned there about the Bitcoin and taking payments for oil in Bitcoin. It's very interesting what's happening right now with Iran as well. They're actually using a lot of the excess energy to do Bitcoin mining. So a lot of the mining rigs that were in China, when China said that they were going to ban it, they all got moved offshore and a lot of them made their way to Iran. And now they're mining Bitcoin. So usually when we think of state-run Bitcoin, we're thinking about El Salvador or the Central African Republic, but there's all their countries and other regions that are using it as well. And the more countries that the U.S. and the West decides to sanction, more countries are going to be going into this direction. So when people are having the conversation about Bitcoin, they miss a lot of these types of things as well. So transacting in something like oil or other energy, or what we will see soon is agriculture, grains and things like this is actually starting to be done in Bitcoin as well, which is really fascinating to watch. Oh, I completely agree. And Bitcoin is very confusing for most people. And it's been likened to the platypus. It's a sounds like a weird comparison. And it is a weird comparison at first. Remember the platypus, it's a weird animal. It's it's like it, it, it has features of a duck, a reptile, and a bird. And like when the Europeans first discovered this weird creature, they would like tell people back at home and they thought that was a joke, but it wasn't a joke. It just didn't fit into the classification of what people thought of as animals at the time. So that Bitcoin is the same. It like has no CEO. It has no marketing department, no earnings, no dividend. So it really is like a new thing that just doesn't fit into the established paradigm. But it is money. It, I view it as money. It's something that nobody can debase it. That's the most important thing. In my view, I've studied money and economics for many, many years. And the most important feature of money is this. There's all these other ones, you know, it can be durable, divisible, consistent, privacy, fungibility. Those are all good, but it's if it doesn't have resistance to inflation to its supply, then none of those other things matter. If it, if it ha doesn't have resistance to debasement, it doesn't matter if it has good fungibility. It doesn't matter if it has divisibility. You need resistance to debasement, and Bitcoin has that better than probably anything in the world. The other only other thing that's close is gold. So yeah, I think it's they're turning to this as money. That's not a surprise. It's an emerging money. It's a new form of money, which is why it's so volatile. That's It's in, in money in the very early stages of adoption. That's why it's volatile. But to go back to your point about the Bitcoin mining, this is, this is a really interesting thing that very few people under, realize, that Bitcoin mining is very simple. All it does is it migrates to the places where there's the cheapest energy. It's all about energy arbitrage, which is why you're seeing the fusion of energy companies and Bitcoin mining companies. For example, Shell is now sponsoring the Bitcoin conference in 2023, and they're teaming up with Bitcoin miners. Gazprom in Russia is already experimenting with Bitcoin mining. Anywhere where you have cheap electricity or stranded electricity, plug in some Bitcoin miners and you can monetize that. That has changed. What has changed is that for the first time in human history is that energy can be monetized regardless of location. That has never happened before. That has never been possible before, but now it is. And, and anybody can do it. It doesn't matter if it's Iran, North Korea, anybody can do it. I can do it. You can do it. Anybody can do it. So that's a game changer. Well, and then what do you add to that Skylink or these types of satellite type of internet providers? You can imagine little Bitcoin mining rigs on a hydroelectric out in the middle of nowhere that's connected to no towns, no cities or anything like that, and just have it completely off grid and do mining out there. And when you look at some of the countries that have the colder weather, or like obviously people know a lot about Iceland, but there's a lot of other countries out there that pr can produce energy, but don't have like these massive populations that this actually is now very viable for them. So it's interesting to kind of look at Bitcoin from this dynamic and from the larger level and the independence level. 
Oh, absolutely. And this is exactly why these narratives about Bitcoin is boiling the oceans in the media are just complete BS, because all it is, it's monetizing energy that otherwise wouldn't be used. And it's often, like you said, renewable energy, which I don't even like that term, uh, the waterfalls and hydroelectric so forth. I don't, let me just take, so I don't think we should moralize energy usage. I think it's a big mistake to moralize it and say, oh, you know, I'm on my high horse because I have an electric vehicle, even though they're not as environmentally friendly as people believe. I think that's ridiculous. Anyways, that being said, if you buy into that stuff, Bitcoin is using energy that isn't otherwise being used, and it's oftentimes renewable energy. So the the, the whole media narrative about that is just, it's, it, I think they know better. I think that is deliberate, like black propaganda. They know better and they're still putting out deliberately false narratives. So that hopefully will go away just because it's so transparently garbage. But yeah, it's it's changing the whole thing. It's changing the whole game. Anybody can get into Bitcoin mining. And the other flip side is the more people that get into Bitcoin mining, the more secure Bitcoin becomes. It's a very good feedback loop. You have people monetizing energy that would otherwise be wasted. And at the same time, it makes Bitcoin harder to attack and stronger. It represents security in the network. All that electricity that is used for Bitcoin mining, that's a representation of how secure the network is. So when you hear these, these clowns say, oh, Bitcoin uses as much energy as the Netherlands. Well, great. If anybody wanted to attack Bitcoin, they're going to have to marshal that much electricity. Good luck. <laughs> so people don't get that. And I think that's a very important point. Well, I'll a big problem with energy, or at least the grid systems that we have right now, is storing it when we're not using it. So batteries are ridiculously inefficient and extremely expensive to make. But you can really think about Bitcoin mining as stored energy, because that's exactly what's happening. They are monetizing this excess energy, things that they would normally burn off in the flare for natural gas or for oil and things like this. And it's stored in a monetary way. Now they can use this in transactions, in commerce, in settling debts, in many different types of things. So when you start to flip your mindset about the energy debate and how things are traded and fit together, I think that it's really interesting. And I don't think it's a conversation that a lot of people are having in the Bitcoin space. A lot of people are like, it's a Swiss bank account. That's that's kind of as far as they get. And that's a great headline. And I love that, but there's actually so much more to the story. The things that actually are more exciting me, I would say. Oh, definitely. That's the Bitcoin rabbit hole. It, it, nobody's gotten to the end of it yet either. I mean, if you haven't, I haven't, and nobody has. So, it, And that's pretty mind-bending. Just the energy thing alone, like you were talking about, that you can monetize energy anywhere in the world for the first time, that's revolutionary. You could put, you. I mean, it's amazing. that that The applications of that are just mind-bending. And that is not even talking about the monetary aspects of it. This is just the energy aspects of it. So very, it's, it's very encouraging. Look, in a world where there's a lot of negative stuff and a lot of bad stuff. I think Bitcoin represents a genuine reason for optimism and hope. Listen, I need your help for a second. Can you pause this episode right now and go to your favorite podcasting app and leave the Expat Money Show a review? Now, the biggest podcasting app in the world and the easiest one to do this on is Apple Podcasts. So if you have an iPhone, then it should be pretty straightforward. Otherwise, if you're on a desktop or a laptop, you might need to have iTunes to be able to do that. But if you go and search on expatmoneyshow.com, find the podcast and see if there's a place to leave a review. We really appreciate it. What this does is it allows other people to know that this show has value and they should check it out. We are trying to spread the word and spread freedom. And the best way I know how to do that is to move offshore and become an expat. That is the best vehicle in the world. So we're building a super strong community. We are helping thousands of people to do that. And I want you to do your part. So please do me this favor, leave the Expat Money Show a review. Let us know what you think. And yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. So do you think, and this is to kind of circle back a little bit and maybe even close one of the loops, do you think that going forwards with countries like China and Russia as they transact, do you think that they will be settling more debts in Bitcoin? Do you think it will be something like gold or maybe a cryptocurrency that is backed by gold? What's kind of your insights, your, your opinion as people get away from these petrodollars, how they're going to be settling large debts between sovereign states? Yeah, look, what Bitcoin does we talked about the energy, but maybe even more revolutionary than the energy is that it can render central banking obsolete and fiat currency obsolete. 
That's huge. The governments, any government, whether it's US government, Chinese government, Russian government, they generate an enormous amount of power by making fake money and forcing their people to use it. And that's how they keep people enslaved. And that's how they keep people under control. And that's how they extract wealth. Bitcoin short circuits that whole system and renders it obsolete. So I don't think what you found in El Salvador, El Salvador already had destroyed its currency. It had inflated. It had, I think it had the cologne or something like this. So it had its own currency, but it infl hyperinflated it out of existence. And then it adopted the US dollar. So El Salvador did not have the option to extract wealth from its populace through the printing press. In fact, it was the opposite. They were on the receiving end of it because they were having their wealth extracted from the Federal Reserve, which was one of the reasons that Najib Bokele took Bitcoin. That was one of the main reasons he, he announced that he did. He, he didn't want to have his people ha lose their wealth through the Fed's printing presses, which is great. So I don't think Bitcoin adoption is going... If you adopt Bitcoin, you're giving up that power. I don't think any government is going to willfully give up that power. They may do something in be between each other, but they're not going to give it to the plebs. They're not going to give it to you and I. They don't want to do that. So I think Bitcoin is really going to come from a ground up. And it, But in the end, it won't matter because actually one of the most powerful economic forces is the superior money. That is a powerful force. And it doesn't matter what the government's going to do. People are going to spontaneously adopt it, uh, the better form of money over time. So I think that they probably won't do that, Russia and China and so forth. They might do it amongst themselves. Like you got to think of these entities as like criminal gangs. So they might exchange with other criminal gangs, but they're not going to give it to their own people. I don't think they will, because that means giving up the power to inflate the currency. But nonetheless, it's not going to stop the trend. The trend is still, it's still just growing exponentially and Bitcoin adoption is growing. And I think the main reason is, is because it's a form of money that nobody can debase. It's a form of money that nobody can inflate the supply. That's incredible. Uh, and, and none of the other cryptos have that attribute, might I add. From Ethereum on down, there's always some group of people that are in charge that can change the policy. They can make a hard fork and then everybody just follows the hard fork. Well, what is a hard fork? Hard fork is when you change the whole protocol. Could change the supply if you wanted to. Maybe they don't change the supply, but they can change the supply. That's the whole point. Then the whole point in Bitcoin. So anyways, the, with all the other cryptos, the sovereignty is with the developers and the insiders. With Bitcoin, the sovereignty is with the users. That's a huge difference that most people don't understand. So I think Bitcoin is going to continue for that reason, because it, it, if it didn't have that, it wouldn't have credibility as money, in my view. And in terms of a gold-backed cryptocurrency, that, you know, we'll see. The Chinese might do something like that, which is kind of scary. They might launch their CBDC with gold, gold backing. Now that would actually be kind of scary because CBDCs are a horrible, horrible thing, but that actually might get, make it gain some traction. But in the end, a gold backed crypto, whether it's issued by the government or issued by a private entity, it's just a promise. And eventually that promise will be broken. I promise you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm exploring this very deeply because I know the Chinese don't trust the Russians. The Russians don't trust the Chinese. And we're seeing other countries come up through the BRICS nations and they need to interact with one another. And I thoroughly believe that the US dollar has not many years left in it, at least as the reserve currency. So what are they going to do then? What are they going to do if they don't trust one another? And Russia's not going to want to take RMB and the, the Chinese are not going to take ruples and Hiais are not going to be the, the reserve currency from Brazil. So it's like, well, what happens next? So the different possibilities, as I see it, is straight gold a cryptocurrency backed by gold, Bitcoin, or another currency that is backed by other types of commodities. But there is going to have to be something tangible in there. After the entire world has been screwed over by the US with this petrodollar for the last number of years, decades, I don't think that they're going to fall for it again. I don't, I think it will just they'll say, that's it. You know, we're not going back to this. They're going to want something of their own. Now, absolutely, for your point, are the Chinese going to allow Bitcoin and people to transact in Bitcoin? No, there's no way. It'll be 10 cent apps on Alipay and things like this that they'll be able to have expire when they don't want it to, when they want it to, or if you say something they don't like, then they'll turn it off. That is absolutely, there's no question about that. The other point that I do want to make just for the audience, just so we're 100% clear, Bitcoin has inflation, but it's not inflation that you can 
ramp up or slow down. It's not controlled by the Fed, but there is inflation in there. But we know within, say, five to 10 minutes of each other exactly how much inflation will be there until we get all 21 million coins. So that is there, but it's just it's you can understand it and you can expect it. What I meant, yes, is there's no inflating to the 21 million. And that is the key thing. So nobody can create more than the 21 million, which is, yeah, that's the the hard cap, the hard limit. But yes, there is increasing supply, but nobody can increase it arbitrarily is what I meant to clarify. Nobody can increase it more than that 21 million or more than the preset schedule, which is very unique. Even gold doesn't have that attribute. We don't know how many ounces. I like gold. I'm not, you know, crapping on gold. I like it. But we don't know how many ounces there are. We don't know how many ounces that the miners or gold miners are going to produce this year. There is a lack. We probably have a good idea and it probably a better idea than any other commodity. But Bitcoin, you know exactly what it's going to be. And further, if the Bitcoin price went to 100K a Bitcoin, that can't induce the more, more production of Bitcoin. That's no other commodity has that function. Let's say gold goes to 10,000. What do you think that's going to do? It's going to it's going to incentivize gold miners to produce more gold. Certainly more gold than they're producing at $1,700 an ounce. But if Bitcoin goes to 100,000, if it goes to a million, if it goes to whatever, it cannot incentivize the production of more Bitcoin. That is a very unique attribute that no other commodity has. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. It's just so interesting to try to understand the dynamic and where it fits in on the larger scale, because we've had conversations on this podcast about the liquid network, about the lightning network, about these different types of protocols, what will be happening with Bitcoin. you know, And that is what a lot of people are pushing back on as using Bitcoin as a currency. But I think it's really interesting, our conversation today, to try to bring it into the discussion with energy and the sovereign and what happens at this type of level, because that is a whole different level of adoption and use cases, which is really going to change the story. Mm -hmm. Definitely. The way I see it is the governments, there's like kind of a three-way world war going on between fiat currency, gold, and Bitcoin. Bitcoin's kind of like the wild card. It's like a wild card because it's a new disruptive technology. In my view, I think governments, they would obviously, they have preferences. They would prefer to use their confetti. All governments would prefer to use their confetti. Okay, well, if that doesn't work between Russia and China, they're more more—they're all familiar with gold. They are, the gold is familiar to governments. It's familiar to central banks. So they'll probably go to that. And one thing is the wild card is maybe Bitcoin really, really takes off. Or maybe a, na- a big nation state adopts Bitcoin. Maybe Russia start. Like they said they will accept Bitcoin for energy. Maybe if, they're, maybe if they seriously start doing that, what kicks in is then game theory the competition of what your opponent does. If Russia adopts Bitcoin, how could the US not adopt Bitcoin? How could these other countries? And then you really, that, that's really mind bending. So I think where that wild card comes in is that once the first, El Salvador is great. I love El Salvador. They're doing wonderful. But if you get a really big country to do this, then the race is, I mean, then it'll be like somebody running out of a crowded theater. You don't want to be the last, you don't want to be the last country to adopt Bitcoin. You want to be among the first. So I think that could be, really be the wild card. We'll have to see. In today's day and age, over the last two and a half, three years, it seems like the nation state, all they want to do is destroy their own people, destroy their own economy, lock everybody in their home, and have suicide going through the roof, drug addiction and alcohol abuse through the roof. It's this woke culture. You're a victim for everything. They purposefully are trying to destroy society, which is a very, very scary thought, and and one we have talked about on this podcast on multiple occasions. But I'm just not sure that any of the nation states going forwards are going to adopt Bitcoin because this is a way that they're actually going to increase the human capital of their country, the financial capital. It can take care of so many problems. And although maybe someone in the country or someone in the government wants to do it, they won't last long. I think that we will see them being either removed politically, democratically, or they're going to get suicided or something like this. So I just am very, very doubtful that Bitcoin is going to make it at that level. I would love to see that. That's a absolute dream, but I'm just not sure, to be honest. 
Yeah, I, I hear you. I, that's why I said earlier that no government gives up their power to print money, print fake money and force their population to use it. No government gives that up. So I think in terms of nation state adoption, the next one, like El Salvador, El Salvador didn't have, they had already lost that power. So they didn't have, they didn't have that to lose. I would think if you're going to see who is the next adopted, it will be some country that doesn't have its own currency, like El Salvador or another country that's totally blown up their currency, like Lebanon or Argentina or Venezuela. And in these places, they don't have much to lose. They've already basically squeezed all the juice out of the fiat currency scam as they, or maybe Turkey, they've squeezed all the fiat currency. So look, I would look to places that either one don't have their own currency. And also, that's also the case of Central African Republic, by the way, they use this, this ridiculous French CIFA currency, which is a monetary abomination. Another story, basically, France continues to exhort uh, control over its former colonies in Africa by forcing them to use this old French currency. Really weird. Anyways, they didn't have their own currency, so they adopted it too. I think two makes a trend, and I think that is an important thing. So I think the next one will either come from a country that either also does not have its own currency or that has blown out their currency so much that they don't have much to lose by offering that. So we'll see. It'll be very interesting, very interesting. Well, it's interesting that two of the countries that you mentioned there and possibly other ones, but two that really popped to my mind is Venezuela is a massive oil producer and Mm -hmm. their, their currencies, what they've done with hyperinflation is ridiculous. So I have seen many people, I live in Panama City, Panama, so we have so many Venezuelan friends and people, when you go get your hair cut or you go to the restaurant or something like that, Venezuelans, and when if you speak to them about Bitcoin and things like that, this is a way of life. This is a necessity once again. So it will be interesting to watch how that plays out with Venezuela being an energy producing country. And if the country were to adopt Bitcoin. And the second one you mentioned, which is Argentina, which has huge oil reserves off the offshore in, I can't remember the Spanish name for it, but the the dead cow fields, Las Muertas Vacas. Vaca or something like, yeah, Vaca Muerte. And I was just in Argentina. Unfortunately, we didn't get to have dinner together. I, I was I was hoping to, but because of situations, you know, it just didn't happen that time. But seeing the inflation and learning about the inflation in Argentina. You can really see how Bitcoin can just solve so many of these types of problems. Yes, and I think that's why it's not a surprise that you see countries that have high levels of inflation have high levels of Bitcoin adoption. So in Argentina, that's the case. In Lebanon, that's the case. In Venezuela, that's the case. That is something. That's something people should take note of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I was reading through your paid newsletter recently, and you actually have done a lot of work and a lot of research on mining companies, which are actually equities. I mean, they're publicly listed companies. I'm really curious about this because this is not what people are usually thinking about when they're thinking about mining. So I'm kind of happy to take it in any direction you like, but I would like to, I, I suppose, just kind of learn about it or, or understand the thesis of these companies and maybe what the difference is of investing in them opposed to investing in Bitcoin directly? Sure. It's uh, similar to the difference between buying a gold coin and buying a gold mining stock. Two very different things. Bitcoin, I think, is a good long-term uh, savings vehicle. It's just money in its purest form. And these companies, Bitcoin mining companies, they are commodity producers just like any other commodity producer, except for one very important difference, which I mentioned earlier, in that they can be incredibly profitable. And that is because the, the price of Bitcoin, no matter how high it goes, it can't. these miners can't produce more of it. There's a set amount of Bitcoin. The miners can't just inflate the supply arbitrarily. They can only produce as many Bitcoin as the schedule has preset. So that means the only way that a supply demand issue can resolve itself is through price. And if the demand goes up, you can't increase the supply. You can only increase the price. That's what makes these commodities. That's not the same with like corn or soybeans or gold or silver or oil. If the price goes up, the demand goes up, the supply can go up. They can just always make more supply. Can't do that with Bitcoin. And Bitcoin miners are commodity producers just like any other, except for that very important distinction. And it's the name of the game is who has the lowest electricity costs. That's the name of the game. It's a cutthroat industry. And whoever has the lowest electricity costs is going to produce more Bitcoin than their peers and be more profitable. And that's it's it's really not that complicated. I know there are some other complications, but when you boil it down to it, that's the name of the game. Well, I think it's interesting because you're really taking a leveraged bet from three sides, I would see. So number one is the price of energy. Energy around the world is absolutely skyrocketing. 
So you have that as a headwind against you. Now, the Bitcoin price is very, very low at 16.5 or 17.2 or whatever we're at today as we're recording this. And then you have the war that's going on between the U.S. and China. And now chip prices trying, chip manufacturers having to close all of their factories over there and they're moving all of their executives back to the U.S. and they're starting a new chip industry in the U.S. So if any of these things go in your favor, you can see that the miners could go really through the roof. So it really is a leveraged bet on multiple levers. That's an interesting story because there's not many industries with that many different completely independent levers on them. It is. Oh, it it is a fascinating industry and it's misunderstood, which is great because as an investor, you want something that you understand that the rest of the investors don't. And I think this is a great opportunity. It's If you believe in Bitcoin, this is a leveraged way to play it, just like investing in gold stocks is a leveraged play on gold. Exactly the same kind of thing. It's not a substitute for Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin is different. I would own Bitcoin for totally separate reasons. This this is more, this is speculative slash investing money, more speculative. And Bitcoin is more for long-term savings. In my view, and on that note, a long-term savings. Yes, I would emphasize to your uh, to your listeners three very important things about Bitcoin. Not Bitcoin mining stocks. I'll get back to that in a second. But Bitcoin, you want to do three very important things. Number one is that you want to make sure that you don't hold the Bitcoin on an exchange because Bitcoin's like a bear. It's like a digital bearer instrument, and what that means is that whoever has possession of it has ownership of it. So you want to own your Bitcoin in a non-custody or a self-custody wallet. You don't want to hold it on an exchange. My favorite wallets for beginners are the Moon Wallet, that's M-U-U-N, or the Blockstream Green Wallet. These are good for the mobile phone, good for the user, good for the beginner. Intermediate, you'd want to look at Blue Wallet on the phone or on the desktop, Sparrow Wallet or Electrum. Those are the ones you'd want to look at. And then you also want to look at dollar cost averaging because Bitcoin is insanely volatile. It's gone down more than, I think, five, it's gone down 50% more than, I think, five, six, seven times. And it's gone down 80% more than three times or three three times. So it's very volatile. It's not suitable to just buy one large purchase of Bitcoin and sit on it because you don't know what at what point in the cycle. Maybe if you're really lucky, the best way to do it though is dollar cost average because that allows you buy a little bit each week. Don't buy it all in one lump sum and buy it for a long time. That makes sure that you don't buy too much at the top and not enough at the bottom. And then lastly, I would recommend anybody who buys Bitcoin have a four-year time horizon because that is will give you through one of these having cycles because a lot we don't have to get into the nuts and bolts of this, but if you can hold it for four years, there's been rarely a period where Bitcoin has been worth less today than it was four years ago. And that's because of the supply and the having and all this other stuff. So if you can do those three things, dollar cost average, hold in a self-custody wallet and hold for four years, I think you'll be good. Well, I think that it's a great time to be having the conversation of Bitcoin right now, because as we've seen this FTX debacle and Celsius and all of these other ones that have happened this year, and we've really pushed out a lot of the leverage that was in the crypto space. Like this is a asset right now, which has been really, really beat up. So yes, you can buy Bitcoin and and I own a lot of Bitcoin and very happily own Bitcoin. But now it's really interesting to look at the mining stocks, which we were talking about a minute ago, because that, if done correctly, and you you work with a, you know, a good firm, you know, and in your newsletter, you do really in-depth analysis of these. And I highly encourage people to check out your newsletter. It's very quality work. Then you can actually capitalize on these things, as I was mentioning, from multiple fronts. So it kind of really ties into everything that we've been talking about, the energy, the technology, and Bitcoin itself. Absolutely. I think these companies as a group are wonderful speculations. And the ones you really want to look at what distinguishes the different miners amongst themselves, who has access to the cheapest energy, who is managing their balance sheet the best. You don't want somebody who's over leveraged, who can go bankrupt in a downturn, which a lot of miners uh, can do, unfortunately. So you want to make sure you avoid the over leveraged miners. And you want to look at what other kind of competitive advantages they have, because Bitcoin mining is a cut. It is so competitive. I mean, 
if you aren't getting access to the cheapest electricity in the world, you're not going to be profitable. It's, it's as simple as that. But you know, and, and if you are, the ones who get it right are incredibly profitable for the, all the reasons we're talking about. So I'm very bullish on the space. I cover this space in very, very in depth in my newsletter, and I and I pick out the companies that I think you know have the most potential, and I invest in these companies myself too. So I'm very bullish on the space. I think these are it's a mis another nice ingredient is that it's misunderstood. Most people don't understand this. Stuff. Stuff. Most investors, not Wall Street, doesn't get it. So this is great. This is a great investment slash speculation in my view. Brilliant. Nick, I love it. Amazing conversation today. Super fascinating and lots of ideas that we haven't discussed here on the podcast. So I really, really love it. Now, if my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to get a hold of you, where can we send them? Go to financialunderground.com. That is the best place. There's a wonderful free special report that you can find there with some more Bitcoin tips in it as well. And also on Twitter at Nick Bruno. Perfect. Nick, thank you so much for your time. And I will talk to you soon. Great. Thanks, Mikkel. Okay, I am sure that you have heard me talk about it. We were able to acquire expatmoney.com, our new website. We started completely from scratch. Yes, we still have the expatmoneyshow.com website, but it's really being used just for the podcast itself. But obviously, this is much bigger than just a podcast. A podcast is great, and I love this podcast, and I love everybody who's listening to this, but that is only one small piece of the puzzle. If you go to expatmoney.com, our brand new website, you will see a new blog, new webinars, tons of different resources to help you, as well as a shop and a place that you guys can get special consulting services if you want to work with me, if you need a helping hand on this. So go to expatmoney.com, expatmoney.com. Check out the new website, bookmark the website, subscribe to everything there, and it's going to be amazing. I'm super pumped about it, and I hope you are too. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.